Do pray as we go into the Lord's Word this morning that He would give me strength and clarity to speak to you and for Him to give you open ears to be edified and to put into practice the things that we try to study together. Our message is entitled, God's Workmanship. And this morning we hope to continue the line of thought that we've been exploring over the last two Sundays together, coming to a very interesting and I would also add definitive statement by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. You remember two weeks ago, we shared the account of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, and we contrasted it and added in other statements from the other renditions of that and the other gospel accounts about a wealthy young man who is a Jewish man, an adherent to the law, who comes to Jesus and he asks him a very crucial question, good master, what good thing must I do that I should inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as you remember, dismantles this man's notion with the very first statement that he made. The man asked Jesus, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now, that statement immediately answers the man's question, there is none good but God, therefore there's nothing that we could do to earn eternal life. And Jesus begins to ask him questions to reason through this man's question with him. You know the law, you know the commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc. The man says, well, I've, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And the fact of the matter is he hadn't, not according to the standard of God and those commands. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder. He said that if you have anger in your heart towards someone without cause, then you're guilty of violating that commandment. When he taught on adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, he didn't define it the way we would define it as a physical act between two people who were not married. He said, if you've ever looked on another person with lust in your heart, then you're guilty of that commandment. So we're all guilty of violating not one, but all of the Ten Commandments. There's nothing that we could do to earn life because those laws have already condemned us because we've already broken them. This man, when Jesus tells him, one thing you lack, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, which is a different statement, treasure in heaven, than eternal life. I trust that our treasure is in heaven this morning, and I trust that it's there because God has first given us eternal life. We look to things above, not to things in this world. But as this man walks away sorrowful, the disciples, as you remember, are absolutely floored. They begin to ask, Lord, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer to them forever ends the discussion or the debate over work salvation or salvation through something that we do. With men, Jesus says, it is impossible. And so it doesn't matter what variable we want to plug into the equation, whether it be saying a certain prayer or praying after a certain formula, doing more good works than we do bad works, joining the right religious group, believing enough correct truths with men, it is impossible. 
Why? Because remember the first statement he made, there is none good but one, that is God. And if we're not good, what are we? Indifferent? No. There's no neutral when it comes to righteousness or unrighteousness. It is either good or bad. And so if we are not good, then what are we? We are, by nature, evil, dead in trespasses and in sins. That isn't what people tell you today. I even heard it in a television show. I don't even remember what show it was over the past week that the person, the hero, had come to believe that there's a little bit of bad in all men and there's a little bit of good in all men. But the fact of the matter is, before Christ, there is nothing but evil in the hearts of men. And after Christ, as we'll see today, we possess a new nature, the very nature of Christ. But with men... Salvation is an impossibility. Last week, we began considering the flip side of that coin. With men, it is impossible, and if it ended there, what a depressing thought that would be. Could you imagine if the apostles say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, well, it's impossible. We might as well just go home. Might as well just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. We've got no hope. All is lost. But it doesn't end there, does it? With men it's impossible, but what does he say? Not with God. With God, all things are possible. After considering that last week, we spent most of our time in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a very special portion of Scripture. The context is the new birth, how men are saved individually. And when we say men, we have reference to mankind, how people are saved, how sinners are saved, how men and women, human beings, are saved, not in a covenant sense before the world began or in a legal sense as it relates to the work of Christ on the cross taking your guilt and giving you his righteousness legally, but we're learning how individually and how vitally you as an individual, as a person, as a sinner are saved. This is the phase of salvation that is individual and distinct to every child of grace. While we were chosen in Christ before the world began, that was something that happened, that all of us were included in, and it happened, we describe it in terms of linear time, but truth be told, in the mind and purpose of God, He always loved us. We were always His elect, His bride, but that occurred before the foundation of the world, and it was something that was all-inclusive for all that are included. <laughs> On the cross, every one of his children were saved in the sense that Jesus bore their sin debt and took it away from them. And so the entire family of God had their sins taken from them upon the cross. But individually, in your life, think about your name, think about your experience. It was distinct and personal to every single one of you where Jesus personally came to you, where you were dead in sin at one moment and the next moment, you are alive in Christ. You before had only the nature of Adam being only born of Adam. And after, not only do you possess the nature of Adam, but you possess a greater nature. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You possess the Spirit of God, Christ in you, the fruit of the Spirit, the divine nature. As Peter says, you have been made a partaker of the divine nature. You are a changed individual. That is when salvation comes to you personally, individually, and you might say vitally. 
the word vital has reference to life. You've been given eternal life. Now, remember that man's question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? You have eternal life not because you merit it, but because God has given it to you. It is a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace are ye saved. When you were dead, you are now alive because Christ has raised your soul from death and sin to life in Christ. We drew a very special focus on verse 8 of Ephesians 2. Now, Ephesians 2 begins, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. If you notice that phrase, hath he quickened in verse 1 of chapter 2 is in italics, that means the KJV translators are telling you they placed it there to make the thought a complete thought. But it's actually found later in this Greek expression in the original language in verse 5. Since this is one long thought in the original language, they include it there so you know when he says, and you who were dead in trespasses and in sins, you can understand what happened to you so that you are no longer dead in trespasses and in sins. You have quickened. You've been made alive when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. You used to be a certain way, dead. You did exactly what the children of disobedience do. You follow the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature a child of wrath, even as others, and so was I. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. He raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship." Now, any explanation, and we'll repeat this later, of verse 8 that makes faith something that you do rather than something that is given to you or done upon you or in you doesn't take into consideration everything that he said after he used that word. Because whatever this is, is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And so from Scripture, we define faith as that Hebrews 8 knowledge of God. They shall all know him from the least to the greatest. They shall be all taught of God. Number two, we define it as Christ in you, the hope of glory from Colossians 127. Faith in you is Christ in you so that things that are done by faith are done by Christ. And the Bible uses these terms interchangeably. We live by faith. We can do and we should do all that we do by faith for we walk by faith and not by sight. But at the same time, we can do all things through, what does Philippians 4 say? Christ which, what? Christ which is in me. And so as Galatians 2.20 says, we do all that we do by the life that Christ has given us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We live by the faith of the Son of God, Faith in you is Christ in you. And then number three, we defined it as the heart cry of Abba Father. Now you might think, well, I had to choose to cry Abba Father. No, the spirit of his son was sent into your heart crying Abba Father. And so when Paul says, by grace are you saved through faith, that's what he's talking about. Which is why it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You see, all of those other statements perfectly, perfectly express what we spent much of our time last week trying to express. Again, any explanations of Ephesians 
2.8 that places man as the active agent rather than God as the active agent misses the mark of what Paul is expressing. Today we want to conclude this short series with Paul's words in verse 10. Now before we read that statement, we've already quoted it a couple of times, I just had to reflect on the fact that message one in this series, until we got to the very end, was a depressing message. Was it not? With men it is impossible. There is none good. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. That's a depressing thought when you're a human being to know that by nature we are the children of wrath even as others. That is depressing. Number two, our message last week was comforting and encouraging. And as we considered the nature of faith, it was deep. That's a deep concept in Scripture. It takes thinking. It takes reasoning. It takes studying because the Bible has so much to say about it throughout the New Testament in particular. So that message was encouraging. Today's message, as we begin to draw to the end of it, is going to be practical. Now, the interesting thing to me as I was reflecting upon that order, first depressing, then encouraging, lastly practical, that's really the order of life as a follower of Christ. That's your story in salvation. That's your story in the gospel, in the word. It's depressing because we are depraved and lost without Christ. It is encouraging when we learn of salvation by grace. And then lastly, what is it? It's practical. It informs us how we are to live our lives because God has saved you for a reason in this world. Now, certainly God has saved you for a reason in the next world. He loved you. He chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God chose you for a reason, that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. But in this world, God has a purpose for you, individually, each and every single one of you. So many times, and as we come to the end of this, we'll see that it's, it's not always that God expects every one of you sisters to be Joan of Arc. He doesn't call every single one of you men to be the Apostle Paul. His Father's Day, sometimes God's will for your life is to be a good father, to provide for your kids, to love your wife as Jesus loved the church, to bring them to church on Sunday morning, and when you have the opportunity Wednesday night, to read them scripture in the home, to discipline them, and to teach them right from wrong. You look back at the end of the day and you think, well, that wasn't glorious. No, but it was God's will so many times for his children. That was God's will. It's not always the grand. We have delusions of grandeur, but it's not always the grand. Sometimes God's calling finds its working out in what many of us would even consider to be the mundane. But that's where real discipleship happens. Not in the exciting, but in the ordinary, everyday life of the child of God. I've been thinking along these lines lately, and eventually this is going to work itself into a sermon, a full sermon, not just a comment. God is our father. He's our husband. He's our shepherd. He's our friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but at the same time, he's our elder brother. All of these expressions, when you begin to meditate upon them, convey that while we think of God as far separated, existing on a throne in the heaven of heavens as 
the Lord of lords and King of kings, God of all gods. He's so separated from us. But in reality, we've been called out not to be people separated by an infinity of the universe from the third heaven to this little rock we live on. But God has called us out to walk with us. And we are to walk with him. When you're getting dressed in the morning, when you're making your children breakfast, when you're going out to eat with friends, everything that you do during the day is to be a part of your walk with Christ. You walk with him. Everywhere you go, you're with him. Wednesday night, we studied Jonah. Do you remember what happens when Jonah goes to the end of the known world at that time? He's trying to get away from God. Guess who was there? Well, God was there. Jonah thinks, if I could just get as far away from Jerusalem as I could possibly get, then when I get there, I'll be away from God and I'll be away from his commands. But God was with Jonah on the boat. God sent a storm. God prepared a great fish. The fish swallows Jonah. He's there with Jonah at the bottom of the sea. He's there when he vomits him out. He's there when he walks all the way to Nineveh, and he's there when he preaches. He's there after he preaches because he's there conversing with Jonah. This life is about walking with your Savior. And as you think about walking with someone, I know many of you like to walk for exercise, and I would greatly encourage it. I don't recommend jogging. No, I've done that before. I jogged like five miles total. Like in 40 years, it's about all that I care to jog. I, I tried it a few times, and I'm like, this is terrible. Why do people do this? And, and you never see a smiling jogger, ever. I mean, you look at them, and they're jogging, and you're, you're like, they look like they're dead or something. They're just like in agony, sweat and pain and grimace. And I'm just like, if, if that's the salesman, I'm not buying it. Anyway, you know what it means to walk with somebody. What do you do when you walk with them? You talk. You're with them. Your company's there. Their presence is there. Rachel and I have spent the last two decades walking together, not so much for exercise, but for company. You get away from screens. You get away from distraction. You get away from books. You get away from people. You get away from phone calls. And you just walk and you talk and you fellowship one with another. We're called not only to obey him and serve him and fear him, we're called to walk with him. We walk with God. I think that summarizes the practical nature of what we want to share with you today. Walking with him created unto good works, good works that so many times aren't the grand, but are more along the lines of the mundane. We'll back up to verse 8 and read into verse 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, through Christ in you the hope of glory. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm going to resist all temptation to expound on that verse since we did last week, but I'd really like to. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The first thing that we want to do in verse 10 is, is to consider this word workmanship. We are his workmanship. To be God's workmanship means that 
We, as saved people, are the work of God. We are the work of God. Now, in English, we can identify Paul's meaning rather quickly, and we'll consider this word workmanship in English, and we'll consider it the word it translates from momentarily. But in English, we can identify Paul's meaning, his meaning very quickly as we understand what workmanship is. I stand behind a beautiful, sturdy oak lectern. We call it a pulpit. And I never know if the stage is the pulpit or the lectern is the pulpit. And you know, that, I think, is even up for debate and discussion. But this area is the pulpit, and on it is this lectern, this book board, and it is sturdy. It's the product of a workman. It's the workmanship. It's the craftsmanship of someone who is an expert, a master, at creating things such as this. I saw a question in social media this week, and the person, it was in a, a rather conservative Christian group, a group that can be critical from time to time of other Christians and other ideas and other schools of thought. It's an expression of what you call the cage stage. You know, when you're first convinced of the doctrines of grace, they have to put you in a cage for a few years so you don't bite people. And you're in the cage stage. You growl at them, you bark at others as they pass by that don't believe the same thing, but you're in the cage. A lot of people in the cage in that group. Well, they made the statement, or they asked the question, do you, do you take a person as seriously if they're sitting at a round table as opposed to standing in the pulpit? It was an interesting question. Well... On Wednesday nights, we've been at a rectangle table, and on Sunday mornings, I stand behind one of two podiums here. And I just made the comment, borrowing from a, a satirical article I read a few years ago, that I want a pulpit to look like the helm of an old wooden battleship. In other words, I want it to look like I'm geared for war. You can surround me with wood, and you know I can lean on it and grab it, and it's not going anywhere. I don't know. Maybe it could. But... <laughs> I want a sturdy pulpit like I'm at the helm of a ship. This pulpit is masterfully created, produced, designed, and built by a master builder. You can look around this building. This structure was built by a carpenter. The other rooms and additions to this have been built by carpenters. We know that it's some man's workmanship. It's there, the product of someone who knew what they were doing and who produced it, who built it. We're wearing clothing that has been sewn together and produced by a workman, whether male or female. You have in your pockets, in your lap, beside you in the pew, a smartphone that's been created by a company. It was designed by engineers. It really is a marvel to know what you can do on a phone, the size of the phone and the computing power of a phone, and yet there it is in your hand able to communicate, to surf the Internet, to access the entire sum of human knowledge over thousands of years that we find on the Internet right there in your hand. Last night I was laying in bed, and I have to put the cover over my head because I get fussed at for the brightness of the screen if Rachel's still awake. And I'm reading Greek words from the Bible as I lay in bed at 12.30 at night on a phone. It's amazing, but it's there because someone made it. You drove here in an automobile that's the workmanship of someone, the craftsmanship of someone. 
In English, we identify Paul's meaning very quickly because we know what a workman is. We know what workmanship is. We are God's workmanship. We are the product of God. He has created us. Now, as we'll see in a minute, sometimes this word is used to refer to physical creation. But you notice when Paul begins to specify what he means that we are God's workmanship, he doesn't mean created in Eden, created in Adam, and then as Adam has children, we spread through the world and we live as the descendants of Adam. No, he has something very special, something spiritual in mind. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So the type of creation that Paul has in mind in Ephesians 2.10 isn't physical creation, though this word sometimes is used in that context, even in the Bible, but spiritual creation, referring not to our physical existence, but to the moment that you were made alive in Christ when he quickened you, when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. Again, everything is the product of something, even creation, even creation. Now, you might look out at the birds and say, well, they just come from other birds. Yes, but someone made the bird. Someone made the first bird. You look at the trees and you think they just grow. It's just what they do. No one built it, but someone built the tree. Someone built the grass. Someone clothed the field with lilies. God has created the Greek word here, poema, is used one other time in the New Testament. How many of you want to guess what concept is under consideration the other time that this word is used? It was used by Paul. It was used in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 20. Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal and power, his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, when Paul says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, the context is Paul condemning the wicked because they reject the existence of the Creator, even though there is enough evidence in creation for them to clearly see the world and understand and perceive that God exists. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to see by faith and worship Him and serve Him. No, we understand that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. But there is enough evidence in them, let alone in creation around them, for any human being with the faculties of mind to come to the conclusion that we live in a creation made by a creator. The more we learn about the human body, the more this is an undeniable fact. Not only are we physical in the sense that you have skin and bone and hair, we have cells that make up the skin and bone and hair. Inside the cells are tiny little parts that have functions in and of themselves. And you are programmed, programmed with a code, just like your phone has software. You have DNA. And you have 
processes in your brain that scientists still don't understand. How you process information and interpret it. How you see the world around you and hear the world, smell the world, and taste the world. As the Psalms say, you are fearfully and wondrously made. And anyone can look at creation and say, undeniably, there has to be a creator. The more we look at the world around us, the more we learn of the human body, the harder and harder it is for us to say that we are not literally designed designed by God. When Paul said that, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The word made translates from the same word that the word workmanship translates from in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship literally means we are something that God has made. We are made by God. Now again, this context is not physical creation. This context is spiritual creation. God has created us anew in a spiritual sense. Paul's usage of this word in both contexts is rather revealing. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. The creation of the universe and the new birth are parallels in a sense. The creation of the universe and the new birth, being quickened when you were dead in trespasses and in sins, are parallels in a sense. Both are solely by the power of God. Number one, when God created the universe at the beginning of time, he used no power other than his own. He spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. It was not, and then it was. Number two, creation was by the voice of the Son of God. You read Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the earth bring forth herb yielding seed, and it did. Let, and it happened. God says, let, and it happens. God says, let, and it happens. God speaks, and things come into being. Did Christ need but to speak to the creation to calm the winds and the sea? Did he need to perform CPR on Lazarus to raise him from the dead? No, he merely spoke. So it is with the new birth. The hour is coming, and now is, John 5, 25, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Jesus commands them from death to life. So number two, the new birth parallels creation because it's by the voice of the Son of God. Number three, in both cases, creation and the new birth, that which is made is passive in the making. That which is made is passive in the making. When God said, let there be light, the light did not say, you know, that's a good idea. I think I want to be made. And so, boom, here I am. No, that's not how it happened. When God said, when Christ said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus didn't say, you know, it's a pretty good proposition. I'm kind of happy in glory right now, but I know this is important, so I think I'm going to come back to life. 
and float out of the tomb. He didn't have a choice. Why? Because Christ simply spoke it into being. In creation, much like the resurrection of people who were resurrected, and quickened means resurrected, in creation, that which is created is passive. In the new birth, people who are born again are passive in the new birth. They are dead. Christ calls their souls to life in Christ. We are his workmanship. And so the same power that created the universe is what it took to save each and every individual. Now, what did Jesus say after the conversation ended with the rich young ruler regarding who then can be saved? Do you remember what he said? With men it is what? Impossible. No wonder. If it takes the literal power of God in creation to save one person from death and sin to life in Christ, with men it is what? Impossible. We can't do it. We lack the power. There's a term that theologians would use, and we find it in articles of faith and statements of faith and older writings that man is impotent to recover himself from his fallen state by nature. And that word simply means he has no power. He is powerless. We lack the power. And so no wonder it's impossible with men. But not with God. For with God, what? All things are possible. All things are possible. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now there you find the word created. We are his workmanship created. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, now it's interesting that we are in Christ Jesus, but at the same time, Christ Jesus is in our hearts. And so we are in him and he is in us. We are connected with him in a sense. The older writings, especially in the Puritan writings, the old Puritans would describe this as the mystical union with Christ, the mystical union with Christ. And because of American New Age mysticism, Theologians and preachers have shied away from using that term, but it's a good term. We are connected with him in a spiritual sense. We are in him, and he is in us. We were there represented on the cross in him. We rose again in him as he rose from the grave, and he is in us crying, Abba, Father. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. If you are in Christ, you are a new act of creation. You are a new creature. Not merely that you have a new creature, you have a new nature. But you are a new creature. You are a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I've heard it expressed that he has a new creature. This was shared at a preacher meeting about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And... My good friend Daryl Chambers asked the question after he said, there's a difference in saying, I have a dog and I am a dog. Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he what? Is a new creature. Not merely has, he has a new nature, but he is a new creature. You are a new act of creation in a spiritual sense if Christ has taken up residence in your heart. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, I said this would be practical. Let's get to the practical part. 
created in Christ Jesus, you notice the sentence doesn't end there, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We want to consider, first of all, this phrase, ordained, that we should, that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What that means, some extremes to avoid. And then lastly, what this looks like in a practical sense in your life. You say that sounds like two different messages. Yeah, pretty much. Ordained before. Some people interpret this to mean that God predestinated before the world began all the good that people ever do. Now, let me be very clear. All the good that you do, you do through Christ. Again, that was last week's message. All the good that we do, we do through Christ in us, the power of Christ in us. But that, I believe, is an extreme. That would be to say that all the good works that we ever do were unalterably fixed and scripted before the world began. And that seems very inconsistent with the many commands promises and accounts even of disobedience of God's people throughout Scripture from the beginning of time until now. Human history. Just the very word if in Scripture shares with us, conveys to us that everything we do is not scripted. Now, some people believe that everything we do good or bad is scripted. And I would say that that is heretical. Some people say, well, only the good that we do has been scripted. But Scripture gives us these commands and promises blessings when we do them, and we are chastened in our disobedience when we don't do them. Remember that whatever we believe about God's sovereignty, and God is sovereign, God is sovereign, He also does no injury or damage to the liberty of the creature. We were made in God's image. God has a will. And so we have a will that we execute in our lives. Now, to be very clear, a will always acts in accordance with its nature. Before Christ came into your heart, your nature was only corrupt. And so your will always did that which was in accord with its nature, which is sin and depravity and wickedness and deplorable acts, etc. After the new birth... You still have a will, but now you have another nature in you warring against this other nature that you were born with in Adam. And you have the opportunity, you have choices you make to obey him or disobey him. In obedience, you have blessings, and in disobedience, you always find chastening. So to me, it would be inconsistent to say that every good work we ever did was predestinated before the foundation of the world. Scripture does teach predestination before the foundation of the world, but that is to salvation. That isn't saying that our day-to-day lives are so inalterably scripted that we have no choice. We have no will. We have a will. We have choices. Sometimes we make good choices. Sometimes we make very bad choices, very poor choices. We choose to sin. Scripture speaks about sinning willfully. What does it mean to sin willfully? It means you chose to. In other words, you can't say the devil made me do it. We love to shift the blame. The woman thou gavest to me, she gave me and I did eat. 
Oh, really? Did she put it in your mouth and move your jaw for you, or was that on you, Adam? We can sin willfully. That means we choose to sin, and we find chastening when we do that. So what then does this mean? We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ordained in the sense that God has ordered them. God has ordered them. God has commanded his children to bring forth works that are pleasing to him, to live in such a way that he is pleased. So number one, ordained in the sense that he has ordered them. God commanded them. God saved us that we would be holy. He has given us his holiness legally and positionally. He has given us his holy nature vitally when he saved us. So as people who have been given the righteousness of Christ on the cross, when he took your sinfulness upon himself and gave you his righteousness, and people who have been given his holiness in a real and vital sense, he expects you, yea, rather he commands you to be obedient to his word, to his commandments, ordained in the sense that he commands us to walk in holiness. Number two, also in the sense that good works, God has before ordained that we should walk in them, in the sense that good works are specified in his word. Good works are specified in his word. Now, I want you to remember this sentence. We're not left to ignorant ambition or blind zeal if we want to serve Christ. The world would be a much better place if God's people knew his word and obeyed it. What does Hosea say? God's people, what? Perish for a lack of knowledge. Where there is no vision, the people perish, Proverbs says. And vision there doesn't mean pastoral ambition. It means literally the giving of prophecy. The prophets were called seers, those who see, and they would have a vision. And that vision would be the word of God to the people of God. Where there is no vision, where there is no word of God, the people perish because they perish for a lack of knowledge. The good works that we are to do have been ordained by God when God gave us His word. They're before ordained. We don't have to rely on ignorant ambition or blind zeal to honor God with our lives because God's word truly furnishes us unto all good works. That language is found in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writing to Timothy, referencing back to the fact that Timothy had a godly mother and a godly grandmother. His mother and grandmother were Hebrews. His father was a Greek. His mother and his grandmother taught him the word of God. They had an unfeigned faith, a true faith. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, or inform you about it, teach you about it, educate you about it. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, this statement, inspiration of God, comes from one word that means God breathed. It's a combination of two Greek words, the word for God and the word for breathed. Scripture is God-breathed. All words are God-breathed. I've given you that exercise here. Try to speak, try to say a word without breathing out when you do it, and suddenly it's impossible. I was leading an after-school devotion with some kids. I guess it was, I guess it was some months ago. I think it was actually in, in early fall of 2020. And I was talking about scriptures being God-breathed, and they're like, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, I want you to try to talk without breathing. Okay. And then they tried, and you should have seen the looks on their faces because they suddenly realized, I can't talk without breathing. Air has to pass through your vocal cords. You know, to a bunch of sixth graders, that was kind of amazing. Scripture is the Word of God. It is God-breathed. God has breathed it out. All Scripture is given by inspiration. That's what that word means. And it's profitable for doctrine, for biblical principles, for reproof, for correction. If we do something that's wrong, the Word of God will step on our toes. My friend Joan Nettles always says, then we need to get our toes out of the way. If the Word of God steps on my toes, I'm standing in the wrong place. So I need to move. You know, I'm sure all of you have had that experience where your kids are playing with a toy with wheels, and they're pushing it around, and the next thing you know, those wheels go over your toes, and it hurts, and by the time it hits one foot, the other foot yanks out of the way. If the Word of God steps on my toes, I need to move my feet. Reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness. God hath before ordained in His Word the good works that we are to do. Instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, which means mature, truly furnished unto all good works. You have everything you need for instruction in righteousness in the Word of God. God has before ordained in His Word the good works that we are to walk in. He has specified what He expects of us. Specified what He expects of us. Now lastly... What does this look like in our day-to-day lives? Now, I want to remind you of a passage that we read last week in Hebrews chapter 8. When you come to know him, and all of his covenant children will know him from the least to the greatest, and this is a teaching that God himself does, they shall be all taught of God, John chapter 6. When God saves you in the new birth, internal principles are infused before external actions occur. Internal principles are infused before external actions occur. A simple way of saying that is life precedes action. Life precedes action. But I want you to understand that God has given you so much more than mere life. What did he do? He wrote his laws upon your heart, your mind, and your inward parts. He took away the heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh. Hebrews 8.10, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them in their hearts. 
I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. You might think, well, that says I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel. That's talking about the physical nation of Israel and not people like me and you. But I remind you of the book of Romans chapter 2. Paul says the New Testament Jew is one inwardly, not of the circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart, because the Spirit of God has written His laws upon the fleshy tables of the heart. You as a Gentile who have been born of God are a spiritual Jew because God has circumcised your heart. The whole purpose of that in the Old Testament was to point to the new birth, which is the sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Old Testament circumcision. Well, the sign and seal of the New Testament covenant that we walk in and enjoy and live in is circumcision of the heart. How do you know you belong to Christ? Because He has given you life when He changed you, when He quickened you, when He wrote His laws upon your heart. Internal principles are infused before external actions occur. But as the internal principles are infused, to borrow an expression, Elder Marty Hoskins is a dear friend of mine. His father was a, an old Kentucky mountain preacher. So he would listen to me probably and say that this guy is just some dry lecturer because I don't have enough pizzazz, I guess, not enough emotion in what I'm saying. But his father had some old country wisdom, and he likes to talk about it when he would get on this subject. Grace in the heart is like oil in a gourd. And we talked about the gourd Wednesday night that shaded Jonah, but this is the gourd that you see. Old people used to have them all the time in the country where you'd get this hollowed out thing, I don't know, this thing that grows on trees called a gourd, and you cut a hole in it and birds live in it, but you put oil in a gourd and what's it going to do? It's going to leak out of the gourd. Grace in the heart begins to have an effect on the man's outward actions. But again, the internal principles are infused before the external actions occur, and then we begin to see differences in a person's life because grace has changed them. Anybody that says the new birth only changes in potential is falling dangerously close to the heresy in the 1800s of holologism. Non-effectualism, an effectless new birth, is an error. The new birth makes a difference in a person's life. Does that mean we're super saint, super, you know, kind of lordship salvation type ideas? No. No. Again, what did I say about ordained unto good works? We have a new nature. We're blessed in obedience and chastened in disobedience. And there's much disobedience in our lives. But at the same time, the new birth makes a difference. The laws are written on our heart. We're changed. Now, my clock says 12.00. And I know I said it a few minutes fast. I'm just going to read with you Galatians chapter 5 and then remind you of a recent passage, and we'll bring this to a close. Paul says in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, the byproduct of being born again, the fruit of the Spirit is love. What are some of those good works that God commands us to walk in? Love. 
Did you know 1 John chapter 4 says that God is love and everyone who's born again has love in his heart? Without Christ in our heart, we have no love in our heart. Explains a lot about this world, doesn't it? Without Christ, we have no love. What are we? Titus 3. We are hateful and hating one another. Hateful and hating one another. All we are is hate. We are hate embodied without Christ in the world. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I love that that's fruit number one. As we begin reading the fruit of the Spirit, it's one that we need to emphasize. You you even have faith and hope and charity, which is love, paralleled, and the greatest of those is what? Well, it's charity. God calls us to be loving people. Love preserves churches. It preserves marriages. It preserves homes. Walk in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Do you know God has called you to the good work of joy? If we look like we've been baptized in vinegar and formaldehyde, something's wrong in our discipleship. I only got one chuckle out of that. If we need a visual example, I'll get Josh to come do some baptisms because I'm not getting in the vinegar. But get one of them new baptistries where I'm on the outside and I'll wear a respirator. We have plenty of masks after the past year, right? Joy. Internal principle that has an effect on our outward lives. We're to be joyful people. Peace. We're to walk in peace. We're to pursue peace with our family, with our friends, with our fellow man. Long-suffering. To suffer long with things that others do that you don't like. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, Peter in particular, Lord, if my brother offends me, how many times do I forgive him? Seven? Boy, on that eighth time. I mean, there are some folks, and we all have this nature, if it were seven times, we'd be counting them looking forward to the eighth because I'm really going to let him have it. No. Seventy times seven. Biblical number of completeness times the biblical number of completeness times ten. In other words, you just forgive him. You forgive him as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Long-suffering. Gentleness. To be mild with those around you. I need this reminder as a dad on Father's Day to be gentle with my children. I have gotten better at that in the last few years than I was early on. But I'm telling you, I can get harsh faster than a Tesla can hit 60 miles an hour. It's in my nature. We can be harsh, but Scripture calls us to gentleness, goodness, simply the trait of being good, faith, fruit of the Spirit as we discussed last week, but walking in it, walking by it, and being faithful because the word also means fidelity, meekness, humility. The lack of self-will, doing what God would have you to do, even boldly what God would have you to do. Temperance, to deny ourselves. Against such there is no law. You remember Titus 2. 
and all the different things that Paul said to the aged men, the aged women, the young men, the young women servants and masters, culminating with it with an exhortation to even obey magistrates. If you want to know what the good works are that God would have you to do, meditate on these things. In the Psalms, so many times we find that word selah, and we don't really know what it means, but we think it means to think on these things, to reflect on it, to pause and consider it. God has ordained the good works. What does He expect of me? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Selah. Think on these things. We're saved to serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this encouraging, practical portion of Scripture that is wrapped in so much doctrine so much salvation, so much teaching on how Christ has saved us, what it looks like, what a miracle that is literally compared with the creation of the universe, but something that miraculously happened personally and individually to each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, that when we were saved, grace was given to us and your laws were written on our hearts and our minds so that we know right from wrong from the inside out, not the outside in, as so often was emphasized in the Old Testament. But we can obey you. We can obey that form of doctrine from the heart, as Paul wrote. Lord, we pray that we would be walking in good works, understanding that so many times it's not the grand and exciting, but it's the simple, God-honoring, God-fearing, day-to-day sort of life that you've called us to. Help us to be good fathers on this Father's Day. Help us to be good mothers, good sons, and good daughters. Help us to be good citizens, good disciples, good brothers and sisters in Christ, that we, Lord, not not that we would glorify ourselves, but that we would bring you glory and honor in this life. We pray in thy son's holy name, Jesus, and we say amen.